What's up, everybody? It's Hit Factory once again. My name is Aaron. I'm Carly. And uh, joining us today on the pod is a very special guest. One half of the We Need to Talk About Kevin podcast. Trevor is here today. Trevor, thanks so much for being here, man. Hi, thanks for having me. We have a movie in mind to discuss today, of course, and one prepared. Um, But first, Trevor, can you maybe tell our listeners who are not familiar with We Need to Talk About Kevin, uh, maybe can you can you pitch them on your show a little bit and tell them what what the basic premise is of, of your program? We Need to Talk About Kevin is basically a show about how we've cursed ourselves to uh, watch all of the films and other uh, cultural detritus of Kevin Smith. Uh, we've gone through all of his movies and watched a bunch of other movies sort of involving him and listen to some of his podcasts and some other stuff kind of in like the uh, kind of Kevin Smith universe. And it's been a miserable, miserable experience. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I really don't like the man or his films. Uh, the more that we've uh, gotten to know him as a person, the, the more we've uh, started to dislike him. But we keep going because uh, there's, I don't know, for, for like a small... Uh, uh, but loyal fan base that people really seem to be interested in hearing us subject ourselves to that. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so we're still doing it, and unfortunately, there's still a lot more Kevin-centric uh, content that we still need to get through. So, hopefully, someday this horrible task will end. But uh, it's very philanthropic of you. I like to think of it as a public service. We constantly advise. <laughs> everyone else not to watch this stuff or have anything to do with it uh, we're doing it so you don't have to much appreciated yeah we so appreciate it and philanthropic but also wading into some of the the darkest territory of of the human soul here like you are a sociologist of the most uh <laughs> uh, courageous kind my friend so we oh my <laughs> we appreciate it as as someone who also uh you know just sort of generally loathes Kevin Smith, um, all of his likes, his dislikes, his takes, um, and and I would say most of his movies. I don't know. You know, I there's part of me that feels like maybe I still like parts of Clerks or Chasing Amy, but I also haven't seen them since I was like 16 years old. So mm. it's very easy for me to to uh, <laughs> you know as, as, assume that without revisiting and just seeing just how terrible they are. Yeah, uh, without getting into it too much, I'll just say that those two movies you just mentioned are very bad. (laughs) (laughs) Great. It means I don't have to ever revisit them, and I can just listen to you uh, talk about them on your show. (laughs) I think, thankfully for all of us today, we are discussing a film that has, as far as I know, absolutely nothing to do with uh, Mr. Kevin Smith. It is James Mangold's 1997 cop thriller, Copland. Um, a film that I had not come to until very recently. I guess a good place to start with our discussion there uh, is just everyone's general general feelings about the film. Trevor, what, uh, what did you think of Copland? First, I'll just say, uh, technically it has nothing to do with Kevin Smith, but it is a, a Harvey Weinstein Miramax production. <laughs> That's true. So it is somewhat connected to the Kevin Smith universe in that sense. Uh, 
he was proud proudly a part of the Weinstein uh, stable for many years. Uh, but uh, like but, three degrees of Kevin Smith everywhere yeah, you go. Pr- yeah. yeah, it's so- somewhat related, but not really. Right. A, ca- a capo in the Weinstein crime family. <laughs> right, right. Uh, so I hadn't seen uh, this movie before. I'd been sort of interested to check it out. I have like kind of mixed feelings about it after watching it, I think. I really appreciate what it was trying to do and I do kind of like how generally anti-cop the the movie is. I kind of feel like it doesn't really achieve what it's going for as well as it could. Totally agree with you. I think all of us sort of landed there and I'm actually really glad that you suggested this film that we landed on talking about this one because I hadn't seen it since I was a child. I'm old enough to remember when it came out Mm. and sort of the fanfare that was around it uh, and around Sylvester Stallone specifically. And I remember watching it like with my parents maybe and, um, and really liking it and remembering that I did have like a soft spot for it. But in revisiting it, much older and with a 2021 critical eye, it absolutely falls short of pushing past some of the lib tendencies that like Mm. permeate a lot of the conversation around police. Uh, And I agree with you. I think there are a lot of things that this movie does really well, specifically uh, with regards to Sylvester Stallone and sort of how it populates the landscape of the film with, with uh, movie mobster actors, but um, I also had mixed feelings about it. I I, I landed in the same spot. I, I was I was really impressed with Sylvester Stallone. I don't think I was really familiar with the buzz around this movie from the time. I was probably too young, but um, I I really liked seeing Sylvester Stallone play this sort of like dumb oaf with like a heart of gold like it's like a really great role from for him yeah well he got his start playing that very character as rocky and one of the things i love about heflin stallone's sheriff character in this movie is how evocative of rocky he is he has that sort of like battered down kind of sweet dumb a gentle giant kind of a thing that he does really, really well. There's no one that plays that type of character the way that Sylvester Stallone does. And it's it's why when he's in a lot of these other movies preceding Copland, you know, when he's doing Rambo or uh, Demolition Man or whatever, it's it's just like... Like it's not, it's not good stuff, you know? And, and then you see him in a role like this where he's returning to something that's really well-tread for him uh, and that he knows like the back of his hand and it just feels so perfect. I, I love seeing him in this role. Yeah. It's like once every 20 years we get like a really knockout Stallone performance and it always comes back to this same sort of archetype of like, the past is prime, kind of soft, kind of dumb, uh, like in, in, embittered, embattled sort of oaf, right? Like it starts with Rocky in like 76, right? 76. Then, you know, you get to 97, you've got Freddie Heflin. And then 2015, he returns uh, in Creed and in, in Ryan Coogler's uh, film and, and plays Rocky again, but like an older, faded version of him trying to train the next generation. So 
uh, you know, if if the trend sticks, you know, by by like 2035, uh, you know, a, a 92 year old Stallone will put out just like, you know, another bang up performance, you know, I'll as, take it. Yeah. as You know, he'll he'll just be reckoning with with the waning days of his life and it'll be really heartbreaking and like soul shattering and the ra- the ravaging effects of all the HGH he's been taking yes, for the past totally. 20 years. Right. Yeah, just Poor a guy. just a like necrotic skin bag over like this like calloused soul underneath. Yeah. Aww. It was it was also crazy to me to see him so out of shape. Like I guess he put on weight for the role and everything. So yeah. he's like this just doughy oafished sweet small town sheriff and it's just so outside of what i like expect expect from him because like i expect him to be like all like like buff as shit like roided out and this was like a very different uh physicality for him also yeah and he's really you know he lumbers along quite literally in this movie he's sort of like that kind of ape lean forward knuckle dragging the knuckle dragging but <laughs> but no there is there's something really fantastic about the corporeality of his performance that is pretty subtle um but it's still there and in particular if we're getting into Stallone and this role for him what i think is interesting to talk about is the ways in which Heflin as a character also mirrors a lot of the ways that Stallone was kind of situated within the cultural and cinematic landscape like of the industry and that by the time he got to this role he was kind of the butt of a joke everyone was sort of like oh this guy he's like washed up you know he's in the movie with these really big names that were making tremendous films and in the movie he too is kind of like this guy that no one takes seriously he's this washed up husband who you know remembers the glory days of like when he saved some lady's life and that's like the high point of of his career and so i think what makes this movie richer for me is the real life parallels to stallone's career and also just sort of the cultural shift which we can get into from where we were in the early 90s cop movies to where we ended up in the late 90s with this one right because he was pretty radioactive at this point in in terms of like casting i think you know there's a a good uh mangled interview with uh in vulture with bill gabiri where he kind of talks about that right where it's like the the stallone heads who were super into you know rambo and and uh judge dread were not people who were going to like this movie and people who wanted to see a more thoughtful kind of uh, throwback kind of cop thriller, we're going to see Stallone and immediately th- uh, think that the film was like undermining itself and, and just kind of stupid, more stupid for, for having him in it. And yeah, I mean, you know, a large part of that does have to do with some of the career choices that Stallone made following following that, that kind of peak and pinnacle of his career with like Rocky and First Blood and then going straight into more of that kind of generic action fare. It, it is kind of a daring choice to have an ensemble with all these great actors who are known for like roles in Scorsese movies and then have that all anchored by Sylvester Stallone, who is like basically a B action star at that mm-hmm. point. Totally. It, I, I appreciate how unsafe that choice is when you have like Keitel and De Niro and all these great actors like surrounding him to make him like the center of the movie. Absolutely. Right. Well, and like Carly is saying too, it's like, you know, that that feeling of Stallone being a pariah is 
is articulated right. even in like the narrative of the movie itself. Like here's all of these sort of like titans of cinema, you know, like when when Kaitel like stares him down and like shuts the door on him like to a party, there is already sort of that uh, intrinsic feeling on behalf of the audience that's like, oh yeah, Stallone would absolutely not be invited to that party. Like he does <laughs> sure. not belong there. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it is, it's, it's one of the bolder choices of the film and, uh, leads into probably a, a good conversation about just the cast here, because as we've already alluded to it, it does have all of these mavericks. It's got, uh, you know, Scorsese and, and Tarantino alums like Keitel and De Niro, Ray Liotta, um, Peter Berg shows up here in like a pretty sizable role for himself. Uh, and then of course, just like the sheer number of stars in this film who would go on to be in The Sopranos. Sopranos, yes. Yeah. <laughs> like, Edie Falco's here, Janine Garofalo's here. Beansy. Beansy, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fucking, uh, and, and, like, does Polly Walnuts only show up in photographs? Like, we don't actually ever see him, do we? Like, Tony Sirico, uh, I think, yeah. is just in he's just some, in... like, black and white surveillance photos. Like, he, he's, he never has, like, a yeah, moment I in Yeah, I think that's film. right. Yep. <laughs> so... I assume that like in a longer, you know, non Weinstein cut of this film, he probably has some sort of like speaking role or, or part to play in the film. Well, the the one I watched was the director's cut, but I don't think I saw uh, Tony Sirico in the in the action anywhere. So, oh, okay. uh, so yeah, never mind. I really then. don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Mangold's artistic vision preserved uh, with with Tony Sirico only in photographs. Yep. Yeah. Maybe he'll do a 4-3 black and white version here soon as well. I have a quick question, actually, since you watched the director's cut and we did not. Did the director's cut have the opening narration about how the officers all sort of came to be living in a different community than the city? Yeah, the the De Niro voiceover. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah, it was there. I asked that only because I... I read, we were doing some research and Mangold referenced several times that there was a lot of pushback from Weinstein and other sort of higher ups at the studio that that was like an entirely implausible conceit. And he was like, no, actually, I grew up in a community just like this. And so right. they insisted that he add this one sort of voiceover in the beginning, explaining it away because they felt really strongly that people wouldn't believe that there was a community of cops living in a suburbs, living in the suburbs, policing, oh, okay. uh, you know, an urban center. And, and I thought that was like a weird, that's just like a weird request, but he said that he did it and it was fine. And it was oh, yeah. one of the most immaterial like edits they asked of him. So he didn't bother, you know, to do anything about it. But I was just curious to know if that he actually kept that in the director's cut or not. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think all I know is that the file I got was labeled director's cut. So <laughs> I'm just assuming. But uh, yeah, in the version I watched, uh, it was it was in there. Trevor, do, do you ever brush up with with Mangold on Twitter? Because he's he's like pretty online. No, yeah, uh, I, I mean, wasn't aware of that. <laughs> he he is definitely more in like a sphere of like like it's sort of that intersection of like blue check film twitter and like blue check lib twitter as well mm. so it's you know it's like the people like craig mazin and and uh, uh like matt zoller sites and people and like he's kind of in that realm and like ryan johnson but he he's like very online he's constantly tweeting he has like long tweet threads 
you know, for fear that maybe he'll like see this at some point and like listen to it. Like he is a little bit pedantic on there too. Like it's it's stuff that like wannabe kind of filmmakers really want to hear and see from him where he talks about the way that he, you know, focuses on triangulating his dialogue scenes instead of just making them shot reverse shot to make them more interesting and, and you know, 20 tweets on that kind of thing. So it is nice and if, if you know, a little bit like erudite, but uh yeah, he like actually he found a tweet I made about this movie this last week, oh. um, and you know was was quick to to point out to me that they made Copland before The Sopranos was on air. Uh, so right. <laughs> it was like one James we know, two like, yeah. that does not really change the the nature of how we arrive at things. Sometimes <laughs> I have seen The Sopranos uh, previously. I had not seen Copland previously, so my point of reference is that. And it's not like a knock against the movie that it has all these Sopranos actors. Like that's, totally. that's a good I, thing. I honestly think it actually, in hindsight, the landscape that this movie sets up is prime for a series like The Sopranos. And Aaron yeah. even remarked that like this movie could very well be serialized as well. It feels like it could be in that realm of prestige television. I, I literally had the same thought because part of like the trouble I had with the movie was that like a two hour runtime wasn't quite enough to totally like explain and sell to me like what why these cops were bad and what it is that they've been doing and like why they're corrupt. Like we definitely see that they're corrupt. Uh, but we mostly just see their like internal kind of Cosa Nostra politics where they're basically just killing each other. Right. Uh, but we don't we don't really get a strong sense of why it's bad that they don't live in the community that they police. And we don't in aside from the early scene with uh, Michael Rappaport and the shooting and the planting the gun, we don't really get like a strong sense of what they're doing that's wrong apart from just covering their own asses mm -hmm. yeah there's like so much complexity and like the intricacies of all of their relationships and the history the backstories you know all of that is there and briefly grazed and touched upon in so many different ways that yeah you 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 want that like two and a half hour movie you want that three hour like crime saga or even like yeah a serialized piece of like prestige television and where you can just flesh out these characters more and and continue to tell interesting stories around around those relationships. So I totally agree with you. Like the, the runtime is, I think, one of the things that I, I see as as detracting from this film overall, because it does. Yeah, it absolutely sort of like isolates all of their malfeasances and, and makes it feel less like this sort of broad, corrosive corruption in everything. Right. And And, and you also don't really ever see the control that the mob has over these police officers like they're they're a, a force that's sort of like referenced and talked about um but you never you never really see the dynamic there either like the ways in which they continue to exert control which doesn't bother me that much i guess because it is a cop movie not a not a mob movie although it it is kind of a mob, it's a mob movie. Well, yeah, <laughs> I, I I do uh, yeah I do feel like that was a deliberate choice to cast these actors who are known for mob movies as cops and they're their personalities in the movies were felt more like mobsters than like cops, which was totally. an interesting choice. But I also like I, I, I would have liked to see some more cop like performance. Like I don't I didn't get a strong sense of that. These guys were cops 
and that they were corrupt in the way that cops were. They just kind of seemed more like mobsters. And I get that that was part of the point of the movie, but um, it just doesn't really sell me on the idea as strongly as it could have. And I think part of that is just not just not having enough time to to really like go into the the complexities of it. Yeah, that's a great point. And you're also making me realize that there's a certain amount of like the cultural backdrop at the time that probably fills in the blanks of some of what a movie going audience at that time like would be bringing with them to kind of flesh that out. Like I'm thinking about the fact that it was a really concerted effort on the part of Hollywood to be a rehabilitative PR machine for police in the wake of the Rodney King beatings mm. for many of the movies that involved police um, in the early 90s. And by the time we get to 97, this idea that cops are bad is one that, you know, now sort of is culturally pervasive, but had really taken hold in a way that was directly a result of a lot of the discourse and kind of societal tumult that came out of the Rodney King beating and the subsequent riots. And so if I think about the fact that a 97 movie-going audience is already going to have this seed planted in their mind that cops do dirty shit and kill people and are guilty of all of these sort of malfeasance and violations. I think Bangle gets away with not really explaining some of that, like, well, why are they? But I agree with you, that doesn't, that doesn't take away the need for that still to be there in the narrative itself. But I wonder if there is a certain amount of popular culture conversation that fills in some of those missing pieces for people at the time going to see the movie. It could be. Uh, I, I mean, it's interesting because this came up like last summer during uh, all the uh, protests. I feel like James Mangold spoke about it and, and talked about how like he had wanted to say something about the problem of cops not uh, living in the communities that they police and how it, uh, you know, detaches them from the humanity of the people they're supposed to serve. But I like I don't really see that in the movie like it doesn't like and that's something that i would have at least liked a few scenes establishing showing more of them actually on the job totally and, may, and maybe viewing their precinct as like a war zone and the people as animals and and all that stuff that we that's something that we talk about now but wasn't really talked about that much back then uh, i think and uh it, it is i really appreciate that that Mangold was trying to kind of bring that to light, you know, back in the 90s. But in the end, it's like the, you know, the internal drama of the movie and the cop characters, you know, ends up taking precedence, like for obvious reasons, you know, because it's a movie. Yeah. <laughs> you bring up a good point, though, you know, like if the film is trying to show us that the, the sort of psychology of the cop character coming into a war zone and policing those people to protect his community rather than to protect that community. Like if, if that's the point here, you know, trying to say something about that and, and get into the heads of those cops and, and show the ways in which that is already like a corrupted kernel of, of a thought, the movie doesn't really ever go there. Like the, the, the few instances we actually see in New York where crime is being committed are like the opening with Michael Rappaport where, you know, despite the fact that he totally 
you know, acts out of like drunkenness and fear. Like there is a, a brief moment where he thinks that he sees these kids like pointing a gun at him. Right. So there's almost like yeah. this apologetic stance on it. And then at the end uh, or near the end, the climax, you know, where where Joey Randell and Peter Berg's character sort of falls to his death. It's in the midst of a, a moment where like Method Man as this like street thug has totally overpowered the cops. Right. So like if your point is to kind of say that this place isn't like a war zone, isn't a jungle and these these people here are deserving of our protection, he falls short by it not ever like showing the police behaving in a way that is, you know, executing like excessive force or, or control over people who don't need the policing or, or, you know, just like, like victimizing these people. Like it it always in some way seems slightly justified, at least within the context and narrative of the film. And it's like one of the greater issues I think with talking about policing where we, we, you know, always go back to this notion that we need police because of all the bad people out there, that there's all of these like really terrible, violent, scary, you know, specters of of criminals out there that will just like run wild and and terrorize all of us if the cops aren't there as a as this sort of force that that convinces them otherwise. And it just doesn't really reflect the the actuality of of what cops are there to do and and of the places that they they police. You're right. In fact, where we see the most them wreak the most havoc is actually back in their home community right against each other yeah that's that's so true so the early part with michael rapaport i do think is interesting because there's a little bit of complexity to it in the same way that in a lot of these real life cases of cops murdering you know young black men like there's there's like some there's like sort of a a supposed justification to they're they're in a situation where and also, like, the fact that his uh, tire just happens to blow out so that he thinks he's being shot out is, like, a little bit too convenient. Totally. That's, like, a little too much. I think just the kids pointing the um, the steering wheel lock at him, pretending it's a gun, would be enough. I don't think they had to also have the, uh, the car tire blowing out. That was, like, a, a little bit too... But at the same time, even if they had fired at him and had blown out his tire... He still straight up murdered them. Like, the, yes. like clear, it was clearly a completely unjustified uh, ki- racist killing, like regardless of the situation. So like, you know, if you're making, if someone making this movie now might resist all of that and have it be like a situation where it's like, they're just innocent kids who aren't doing anything and the evil cop shows up and kills them for no reason. But that would have been a little less uh, lifelike to me. You know what I mean? Like yep. g- giving him at least a reason to stupidly think that his, his life is in danger to then act out and commit the racist murder makes it more in line with like how I think these situations tend to go. Although obviously there are examples where you know, the victim literally wasn't fucking doing anything. <laughs> but in a, in, a, in, a, in a lot of these cases, it's like not it, it quite that simple. But um, I, I, I do like that. And Michael Rapport is so obviously unjustified in, in killing these young men. It, but yeah, but then the scene with Peter Berg 
you don't really know what's up with that Method Man character. Yep. How did really, they get on the roof? How did they really, get on the roof? He seems to be really delighting in in like hurting the cop, which is like, I don't know, like that's fine. You know, nothing against that. But it's like, I don't really get get what the situation is supposed to be there. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely unclear in sort of its politics of who we're supposed to understand. Like like you're saying, the the dynamics of, you know, these cops coming into the city and seeing all of these people as predators or as animals, not necessarily as people that they're there to protect. Like we see a little bit of that in the way that Method Man is shot and also in the way that they radio about him to the rest of their to the mm-hmm. rest of their backup. They're talking about him like he's this sort of rabid, unstoppable force. So we see a little bit of that. But yeah, there it's very unclear sort of like what the situation is and why they're in a scuffle to begin with and and why he's like as you said delighting in slashing the the cops to to bits. And I think like you know there are some pieces where I do feel like there's some nuance being explored to kind of shine a little bit of a light on their their mindset. The thing I actually think about is the scene just before Michael Rappaport shoots the two black men in the car is when he is coming out of the bar, he's clearly drunk, and he hears something. He hears like some retching or some some noise. And he immediately draws his gun and is has it ready loaded, ready to go, finger on the trigger. And that I think is is a small detail, but one that I think speaks a little bit more to what you're talking about, which is sort of fleshing out this this perspective that these police officers have where they are almost coming into a war zone and constantly have their hand on the trigger. That that to me felt more evocative and more more sort of explanatory of that mindset than some of the other you know, scuffles we see them in further down the road. Yeah. It's almost preternatural, but the way in which I immediately switched to like a sort of a position of sympathy for Michael Rappaport's character later on when all yeah. of a sudden like the cops turn on him and how how easy it is within the narrative itself to like forget that he put himself in the position in the first place by like slaughtering these two innocent black men. Well, but he's, he's such a pathetic little idiot. He's so stupid. He like, I mean, he that's, that's Rappaport in the nineties, you know, it's like every, every role he does is like that. It's, it, I mean, it's kind of like, uh, like what the, like Prisbelewski and the wire, you guys know, have you seen yeah. that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Cause yeah. we see, we see him do these awful things uh, as a cop. But he's so he's just so pathetic and so not cut out for being a cop <laughs> that the show makes you feel bad for him, even though like it like he's demonstrably a piece of shit. Yes, he's I totally am guilty of that when he like has his turnaround moment when he like figures some shit out and he gets energized by doing real police work. Yeah, he's like immediately yeah. absolved in my mind. And I'm like, oh, see, he just like needed to find his thing. Right. Yeah. And he yeah. like punches Valchek and yes. it's like, it's like, yeah, get him. Press. Yeah. Like you rock. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the, no, but he's still a piece of shit. He is. <laughs> yeah. And, and Rappaport is that he's like a pathetic little idiot. So it's like, 
Yeah, he there's just, already... He just didn't know no better. <laughs> <laughs> but that's also, like, a very strategic casting uh, for that particular character. Like, Michael Rappaport is an actor who just, like, by his mere presence engenders a certain amount of pity. Like, <laughs> just by being there. Like, we were talking about this recently on in talking about the movie Deep Blue Sea, where Michael Rappaport is supposed to be this, like, brainy scientist dude and he just doesn't pull it off like he's just sad and he still comes off as like you know a guy that needs help and so I think like it's also really easy to do that for his character because one there's a cultural impetus for us to do that to police in general but also with Michael Rappaport like you're like oh hmm. his his I think like best analog in in other like 90s cinema is definitely his character in true romance you know just this like mm. dumb little idiot who like has like a stoner roommate lives in los angeles wants to be an actor but like isn't even like intelligent enough to realize just how bad he is and how not cut out he is to do anything of the type like he, he just he can't evoke real human emotion because he like doesn't understand what he's feeling or or you know isn't in tune enough with with his like actual response and reactions to the world that yeah, you just kind of, you just sort of like, he's he's just a stupid it, little kid. It, it, interesting that we would eventually learn that Michael Rappaport in real life is actually a huge dumbass. Yeah. <laughs> is he? I actually yeah. didn't oh, know that. Oh, you talk, yeah, talk about someone he, uh, super online who just like constantly tells on himself. Like he's, he's, oh man. he's He's got like a podcast and stuff and he's always saying racist shit and like he's a, big weird and like i don't know he he's gotten into like feuds with like the chapo trap house guys and stuff like <laughs> he's a real he, he's a very problematic person he's a weird guy <laughs> great i don't feel bad now about all the shit we've talked about him yeah. on this show then just because we definitely did that in on our deep blue sea episode for sure yeah and once he like you know got a little bit more like it, crag faced and just like became this kind of bostonite idiot like it was it was way easier like not to feel sorry for him anymore he um, he like really wants to style himself as like a hip-hop guy and he really no. doesn't sell it it's really weird oh uh, i hate that so okay bizarre. good to know outside of outside of stallone and obviously you know our our reverence for michael rapaport who who are who are the heavy hitters in this one who are the people who you enjoyed the most in terms of like the casting because I got to say, like, I think De Niro's doing good work here, but the person who ultimately surprised me the most is, uh, is Ray Liotta, who's not an actor I particularly like, but I really, really like his character Figgis in this one. Oh, I mean, I really like Ray Liotta in general. Um, I kind of <laughs> thought, I kind of thought this was pretty par for the course for him. He was good. I really, uh, Robert Patrick really stood out to me, yeah, like, yeah. He, he he was pretty good. He's pretty good at putting on a specific kind of shithead cop like persona, and <laughs> I, I, I I I thought he grounded that somewhat because like so many of the other cops seem like these outsized kind of mob personalities, and Robert Patrick was one of the Robert Patrick and Peter Berg were the two that really felt like cops to me. Mm -hmm. I, I think. Totally. Yeah. Just like assholes without like any sort of real direction. They're just like violent and like mean spirited and yeah, yeah. And just sort of like lap dogs for like the guys who are like actually smart enough to be in charge. Yeah. Those two are, are both like very, 
very cop to me. I definitely superimpose Robert Patrick as a police officer, as the T-1000. Right. Onto <laughs> his role in this movie. He has that same kind of like inexorable murderous quality and where he's just sort of like, he's singular in his purpose of like committing whatever thing he's set to do. Very level-headed. Uh, yeah, he was great. Ray Liotta was really great too. But I mean, he's kind of, he has a lot of that same kind of like cocaine energy that he has for the, like the latter part of Goodfellas. That's you know? exactly it's what like, I said. It's yeah. like very, very similar to Henry Hill. Yes. Yeah, I was I was telling Carly when we were watching it, it's like, this is just like the the last third of Goodfellas. Like that, that's what his character is. Yep. And to a lesser extent, kind of the same character he, he reprises in... Uh, a movie that I love and talk about way too much, Killing Them Softly from 2012. Mm. Um, that same kind of just like kind of kind of scuzzy, like low level kind of crook who like wants to be big time and just like constantly fucks himself over because of his own sort of like rabidness. But yeah, he's he's at his best when he's doing those kinds of things, you know, where he's like not a, not particularly authoritative, just kind of spazzing out and and just yeah, just kind of riffing within within the film. I like the point that you bring up. Trevor about the ways in which you know Mangold sort of fell short of exploring more of this idea of you know these cops sort of coming into this place that's alien to them and then returning to the suburbs and the ways in which that makes them corrupt and influences their perspective I agree with you it it definitely falls short in that regard and I think that's actually why I as we discussed like could see this as a serialized television show I think another thing for me that fell short of pushing something into reality or just giving us more to work with was the way in which the film resolves itself and is Mm. very reflective, I think, of the current conversation we have around police. There's this bad apple argument that always comes up, right? Which is like, it's just this one guy who like murdered this person. Let's get rid of him and it's fine. Um, that's sort of like the societal impetus. And last summer, we really saw that there was a lot of pushback with that um, on a, a broader scale than there ever had been in terms of a national conversation. And this movie felt particularly entrenched in that bad apple narrative of like, it's just these bad cops that are the problem, despite the fact that Mangold spends a certain amount of the movie telling us that this is like institutional corruption, that there is like a structural problem, but then just kind of resolves itself on the individual plane of saying, well, now that all these cops have been killed and the bad guys are dead, things can be fine. And we just need like more police officers like Heflin and then we're okay. Well, yeah, I do think like justice is served way too easily and the resolution is too neat. And that's another thing that like, I mean, I, I I completely agree that I'd like to see it done as a longer series because it has this concept and like the way the story's set up feels very novelistic, but it doesn't have the like length to tell a novelistic story. Mm-hmm. And because I do think it presents the problem in a way that's institutional and all of the cops that we see are corrupt in some way. Even Freddie is complicit. You know, he's like, he's the guy that's basically allowing all this to go on in his town and he overhears it and he does it. 
But and then he and to a lesser extent, Ray Liotta have that kind of redemption where they bring down this. Cur- but like, I, I think a more elegant sort of way to end the movie would be almost like a, uh, what happens in real life, which is more of a limited hangout situation where maybe like <laughs> one or two bad cops are caught and fired or whatever. But the the overall institutional issue, even even Harvey Keitel, who's like the big boss, could be brought down, but then still have some indication that like the institutional uh, corruption that was enabling him is still going on. And even even if a cop like Sylvester Stallone can decide to be good and try to do the right thing, ultimately it's not going to stop the larger forces. You know, he's going to get <laughs> gonna gonna get shut out. Uh, you know, like uh, like Christopher Dorner uh, <laughs> when you learn that addressing the problem from within uh, doesn't work, and uh, mm-hmm. you have to resort to more desperate measures. Yeah, I, I might even just you know. Because I, I already said, you know, Mangold's really online and, and made a, a Twitter thread last year in the wake of of the George Floyd murder and, and the subsequent uh, subsequent sort of uh, protests and demonstrations around the world and, and tried to, I think, in some ways evolve uh, this this thing that he's putting forth in Copland, but still falls short of like a reimagining of what policing looks like. And, you know, his his sort of like summation is what we really need is good cops we need good cops and we need outlets for good cops to hold other cops accountable you know and it's just this like same reform argument that's been continuous and 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 you know the most persistent level of liberal uh evaluation of policing you know where where it doesn't actually say anything about well maybe the problem is like Maybe the problem is the power that the police have. Maybe the problem is the way that people police. Maybe the problem is the people we recruit for the police. You know, it's like, oh, what we just really need is people who like have, you know, this good moral compass and authority within them to hold everyone else accountable and like need levers for them to do that. Um, and yeah, it just it it just stops like ever so slightly short. And every time you kind of see him talk about it, it it's just sort of like this wow moment because you're like, dude, you're 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 so close. You're like right there. Um he even like in that Vulture interview from last year, you know, when they were kind of rehashing and talking about Copland in the wake of of this sort of new conversation, he equates some of, of what the police do, especially the ones who live outside of the territories and communities they police. Uh, he he sort of equivocates and, and, and makes this sort of like parallel between cops and U.S. Empire and and you know like the military industrial complex going into places and conquering them and instituting democracy and and, and sort of misses I think misses his own mark you know like he's he's so close to actually like understanding exactly what the root cause is there that it's like that right. the police aren't actually there to protect people that police are there to like protect things they're there to protect property and uphold like the system itself right like like they're there to perpetuate and and defend capital not people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think about what, what's, what's the phrasing where it's like fascism is just like empire turned inward. You know, I, right. I, think, yeah, I, yeah. I think about that phrasing and just think about the evaluation of cops and how we so frequently miss this as like, as, as policing as this other sort of militarized arm of that same imperial tendency. 
And uh, yeah, I just I, I I want him so badly to arrive at that point, and it just never quite never quite gets there. Definitely not in the film, but even in like the the conversation at large after the fact. Now, twenty years later, the, the there's a thing I always wonder about with movies, like it in cop movies, uh, internal affairs is always depicted as this highly antagonistic force that's like devoted <laughs> devoted to like fighting the corruption and the in the regular cops all hate them and i always wonder if that's even remotely true in real life because i don't know i've never met an internal affairs cop i don't know what they're like but my like prejudiced assumption would be that they're basically like the hr department for cops and that theoretically they're supposed to uh, punish them for wrongdoing but in practice it's more like they protect them against uh serious consequences and bad pr but i don't know that firsthand that's just like what i would assume and the the movie depiction where like they're these crusaders against police corruption always feels kind of dishonest to me yeah you nailed it I dated a police officer for five years and oh, I'm sorry to hear that. That <laughs> live and learn. Um, the, this idea that they are ostensibly a human resources department is completely true. Okay. Um, there is a certain oh, amount. I love being right about You're stuff. so right, Trevor. <laughs> um, there is a certain amount of kind of, I think inherent tension between beat cops and, you know, internal affairs that just sure. exists kind of structurally, right? But for the most part, my experience anecdotally is that they are absolutely 1000% there to take care of the police officers and to protect them and to make sure that their statements are correct and to make sure mm -hmm. that, um, you know- They're Keep their stories straight. And just like set them aside, uh, go home, do what you need to do. Like, we're gonna work on things here that's absolutely what they are there. You know, they're the, they're speaking of Harvey Keitel. They ostensibly are Harvey Keitel's character in Pulp Fiction. Like that's, that's what they do. They come in, they clean up the mess. They've got a plan. They know exactly how things need to be taken care of, what loose ends need to be tied. And, and yeah, you're right. That it's a completely fictional, uh, at least in my experience, it's a completely fictional um, portrayal of them as these sort of like internal, you know, bastions of justice. It's it's hard to imagine that they wouldn't be in solidarity with other police because they're parts of, I assume they're in the same police unions, you know, and like even it even says in this movie, De Niro, you know, went to the academy with Keitel, their old buddies, but now they're turned against each, but it's like, I feel like if anything, that would just make him more lenient. Like they came up together. They're part of the same brotherhood. Totally. Like I don't, I don't see the motivation for him like going that hard to try to like br bring the guy down. You know, well, it doesn't he, seem real, realistic. He I mean, really go that hard, right? There's a lot of like hot air that he blows, but the right. second the mayor says, "Shut it down," he's like, "All right." He gets mad about it. He throws a tantrum. But he packs everything up and they don't, he's not like, I'm still going to pursue this because, you know, I have a clarion vision of like what justice looks like. He just folds the second that they're told that that's what they need to do. And even when he comes to Freddie and sort of makes him the offer to help, it's a lukewarm conversation. You know, it, it didn't feel like 
he was there because he's driven by some purpose to to get the right thing done. He was there to sort of get information and use Freddy the way that he he needed to use him. But yeah, there's there's a little bit of contradiction. I, I also do like that when Freddy does eventually go to him and like uh, De Niro kind of like rejects him. But then when he leaves, he's like kind of like, hey, maybe this guy will go uh, <laughs> yeah. create a problem and then we'll have a case again. Yeah. Like Literally. he's not he's not willing to push back against the institutional barriers internally. But he knows that if he can rile this guy up to create problems, then like he'll have a chance to kind of do his job. Totally. That's like. <laughs> De Niro's best scene in the movie too, like him yelling, "Like you blew it!" And, <laughs> and then the, go to lunch. <laughs> and then the line where he says, "Like exactly that." He's like, "If if, if that cupcake makes yeah, a scene, cupcake. well, we might have a case on our hands here." Yeah, I, I like how much they disrespect and look down on on Stallone, like he's just like a kid. And it's because the first the first scene you see him in, he's like drunk playing pinball. He's got like flip flops on. He like looks like like (laughs) I'm like, is this guy a cop? Like I did the the reveal that he's the sheriff of the town. I was like, what? Because it seems like he's just the local like village idiot hanging out at the bar. Like, hey, anyone got some quarters? Like because he wants to play (laughs) pinball. Like he's he seems like such a dope. And then you find out he's the sheriff. Like uh, there's. Really funny for him to be in that low status position, but it makes sense because it's a town uh, dominated by these New York cops. So the that sheriff of the actual town would just be like a stooge, like a lackey yes. for them. Right? They <laughs> totally. like they like deliberately implement him and and like put him in that position because he's willing to turn a blind eye and because he won't ask questions. Partly because they. Uh, continually like underestimate him and think like oh this is just a big idiot like this is a drunk oaf like what's he gonna do about it (laughs) but guys like in that way i'm telling you that's why the casting of stallone is perfect for this character no you're you're dead on about that it's just like it it mirrors so precisely the ways in which audiences and hollywood absolutely underestimated him and thought that he was just like this big idiot, you know, who like slurred his words and whatever. And here he is. And he's like the beating heart of the movie. Yeah. Well, it's also, it's a very vulnerable part for him to take on. Cause he's usually playing these badass like alpha male heroes, you know, and then to have him like gain weight and get all doughy and then have a bunch of like A-list actors like talk down and to him and berate him. <laughs> like that's a very vulnerable position to put himself in as an actor. I have to kind of commend him for that. Totally. Oh, absolutely. Flip-flops is a vulnerable position. Yeah. Like the second he's in flip-flops, you I, know he's really committing. I, I love when he's just uh, opening up the parking meter to grab the quarters <laughs> to play pinball and the quarters go everywhere and he's like drunken just like picking them up it's really good oh it's such a such a lovable dumb cop lead in i think for him and also you know the the conversation about stallone in this movie sort of after it came out despite the fact that the movie itself didn't do i think as well as the Weinsteins uh, wanted it to, particularly with the cast that they had had put together for Mangold. I do very distinctly remember the conversation about Stallone being one of a great amount of praise and people sort of saying that they still feel like this is one of his best performances. But it's interesting to see the ways in which 
he himself and also Hollywood didn't really do anything with that afterward. Like he didn't go on and like take another role like this or try to explore like his more serious acting chops. He kind of went back to a bunch of, you know, BC list action movies playing old like Rambo and Demolition Man characters. And then he emerges, as Aaron said, 20 years later to play Rocky again and and blows us all away. But it kind of makes me sad that, you know, very much like, again, not to beat a dead horse, but very much like Heflin in the movie where he just sort of, he gets beat to shit, his other ear gets blown out, whatever. He, he comes back triumphantly in this amazing shootout, is worse for the wear, and then just kind of recedes back into his life as a sheriff with this community. And the same thing kind of happened with Stallone where like, he got a lot of praise for this role. He did a tremendous job, but also then afterward just kind of recedes back into this, this well-worn path, this well-worn territory that he had as like a shoot 'em up action star. Yeah. The, the film itself too, like in the voiceover at the end with all of like the, the news footage, you know, supposedly talking about the aftermath of this makes very clear too. Like there's a line where one of the the reporters says something like, uh, people on both sides of the bridge want him dead or don't want to see him recover. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it was just like this this is so indicative of this like of this like cultural zeitgeist and and like it's it's sort of relationship with Stallone where it's like, yeah, you did a good thing, I guess, or you know, you 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 know, you showed up for this moment, but I don't I don't want to see any more of you. I yeah, want you to just like still not accepting him. Yeah, and also the thing is, honestly, I feel like in real life that guy would end up dead. Like yes. maybe oh, not right sure. away. They might <laughs> wait like six months or a year or something, but you'd find him dead in his car, like eventually. Absolutely. One thousand percent dead. De- like dead in a pile up and then like, you know, his body is is burnt to the point of like past identification. So right. it's like, you know, it's it, no, it, it totally makes sense, especially if it was, you know, crooked cops as well as like mob it, affiliated it, people. Yeah, and especially you have you have these mobbed up cops who are willing to kill their own, not even because they betrayed them or anything, just because they're inconvenient like the thing with peter berg like harvey keitel like lets him die just because he's such a like hothead i guess that he's worried that he's gonna like expose them like because like that was like the thing with michael rapaport like the reason they're all upset about this racially motivated killing is that it could expose their whole like corruption racket and that's why he has to disappear and then i guess peter berg is just too much of a risk like he's too hot-headed like you can't have that guy around and it's like these guys are like loyal they didn't even betray them or anything Mm -hmm. but uh i i do i do like that aspect of it that it shows like uh these corrupt cops being just as vindictive and disloyal as like mobsters are i want to talk a little bit about um the ending which we're already sort of like circling here because the catharsis of it you're right just feels really disingenuous but also, you know, very much in line with the kind of genre that Mangold is trying to kind of quote here. Like, obviously, this is a cop movie. It has like a gangster film kind of patina to it as well because of the actors in it and because of the narrative. But the film also emulates tons of Westerns as well. Like like the last act of this film is essentially 310 to Yuma. There's a lot of like mm. remnants of Shane uh, in here as well. You know, this kind of like fading sort of sundowning era of of the heroic western figure and it it just you know struck me immediately because i i realized obviously mangold eventually went on to remake 310 to yuma in 2007 
with Christian Bale and Russell Crowe. He directly quotes Shane in Logan to the point right, where like, yeah. like it's, it's on a television set, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. at one point in the hotel. And then also thinking too about, you know, um, uh, the, the earlier uh, Wolverine movie he did, just the Wolverine and how that one actually even, you know, despite its, its uh, setting is also in a way sort of evoking that relationship and, and sort of dual inspirational force behind the samurai epic and the western um yeah. in a lot of ways so i i i really like that move the wolverine it doesn't get talked about as much as logan but it is a really uh fun movie yeah we just revisited we just and i was like it. i was like i actually really like the premise of this one a lot more than logan like i think it's like a cool setting it feels a little bit more novel than a lot of these movies do uh yeah, yeah. i mean it's 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 not a bad movie by any by any means like angle doesn't really make bad movies he makes he makes some dad movies you know like ford v ferrari is one that i still haven't watched but i know that as soon as i have my first child uh the first thing i'm gonna want to do is watch ford v ferrari Uh, ford ford v ferrari was good i liked it i believe it like he's he's a very strong filmmaker and even like his like lesser fare like you know in the late 90s early aughts or whatever like like the dude did identity which i don't know if you've seen right john cusack and i haven't but that's like a multiple personality twist thing right it totally is yeah yeah that's 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 tough that's rough yeah it's it's very very silly but there is something cathartic and enjoyable about it but yeah you know i was i was just thinking about the end of this movie and how it it kind of rewards that that impulse on behalf of a movie going audience to to see like the the kind of grand sort of western iconic shootout and and have the characters brought to justice but you're totally right like in the end lingers with so many questions that it doesn't even bother to try to answer about like well like what happens to michael rapaport's character now like how do we know that that freddy is going to be safe like what happens to like all the mob ties within within this uh this system like you you killed a couple of the bad dudes like but surely Surely they're connected in other ways and in other facets here. Yeah, well, I mean, I do like the idea that the the standard like uh, institutional means of getting justice on these cops failed. It 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 didn't work. Like IA couldn't do it. Yep. Uh, it took it took a man with a gun standing <laughs> up. Basically, the same conclusion that uh, Christopher Dorner came to. So, uh, <laughs> so, true. so uh, yeah, he kind of becomes like a Dorner uh, figure in the end, and not not quite as uh, as severely, but you know, it's uh, it 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 does it does explore the idea that like this system can't really reform itself from within. So I do I do appreciate that aspect. That's true, and I think it also does accidentally also explore the idea that we move past these really tragic explosions of violence or you know when there's corruption that's that's exposed we like to sort of tidy them up and move on in the same way that this movie does that's very much the sort of societal impetus and we saw that happen with the conversation last summer it was like people posted a black square and then they felt like they had checked the box and moved on with their life. And now the conversation certainly doesn't have as much energy and has even been like villainized to a certain extent by the democratic party. And I think this movie kind of ends us up in the same place where it just sort of says, okay, like this has been taken care of nothing to see here. Move on. I don't know. That feels sort of like depressingly 
relevant and resonant to the way that we kind of handle these tragedies in in real life well uh l like you both said i i like i really like this concept and i'd love to see it redone in like a longer form because there's it, it's it's a really strong concept of being set in this cop town this cop haven and there's so many like elements of that that you could explore with like a a 10 hour prestige tv runtime that I, I, I would really love to see it uh, remade in, in some way because it is a great concept. It was maybe just like a, came along too early to be like fully fleshed out in the way that it needed to be. Uh, a prestige television drama executive produced by Kevin Smith. So, oh, God. <laughs> so then you can talk I, about I, it. I don't know if uh, Kevin has the kind of clout to really help uh, get, get that done, honestly. No, probably not. He's, he's just making like uh, Yoga Hosers pictures and sequels with his, with his kids um, yeah. and Johnny Depp's kids, I guess. Oh, boy. <laughs> um, I think that's pretty much it in terms of Copland. But before you, I let you go, Trevor, I did want to uh, broach another subject. I, I know just from you know some observations online that you are firmly uh in uh in camp kong in the battle between oh. godzilla and kong and I, I wanted you to just articulate that more because i think you know you you summed it up well that you know like kong is the people's champion but i think that the crowd favorite tends to be uh mother godzilla herself so i i, I am curious to know why why you are so firmly in kong's corner well it's a shame that so many uh, traitorous, uh, deceitful individuals <laughs> would side with this reptilian demon uh, over, over, over their own kind, the proud, strong ape with, with its large brain and its opposable thumbs and ability to use tools. Kong is our brother. He is us and he represents us. And he is the only uh, big monster who can defend ape kind uh, like us against these demonic reptilian monsters who are threatening to <laughs> destroy everything that we've created on this planet. And I'll be the first to admit, we haven't necessarily done the best job of taking care of this planet. We've, we've been terrible stewards of the environment and stuff. I acknowledge all that. But when reptiles ran the world, was it any better? It was constant chaos. There was no compassion. <laughs> there was no humanity. There was no hope for the future. Wait, and Trevor, ape... Trevor, what, what do you mean when reptiles ran the planet? I thought they still did. I thought everyone in power was reptilian still. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, so, so, some would have you believe that. Uh, I, I, I would like to believe that, uh, that good mammals like you and me could be the ones to shepherd this world into a brighter future. <laughs> and we do not need to return to the chaotic ways of, of, of large lizard monsters uh, ru ruling over us. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I think that people are forsaking their own kind and they're misunderstanding a fundamental thing about uh, drama and about the hero's journey that just because Kong might seem on the surface to be less powerful than Godzilla because he doesn't have some fancy fire breath attack 
doesn't mean he's destined to lose. It means precisely the opposite. It means he's going to have to use his superior cunning and dexterity and relatable human-like qualities to outwit and overcome Godzilla and ultimately succeed, which is why I know in my heart that Kong will win. And if you want to be on the right side of history, you better you better back the eight. I I agree with you so vehemently on this, Trevor, that I think that, you know, we have seen time and time again Kong come to the defense of humanity. Yes. There is absolutely yes. 99.9% of our DNA shared with Kong. Uh, mm-hmm. And you're right, the hero's journey, perhaps maybe the implementation of some sort of MacGuffin, some sort of powerful, uh, archaic, but historical weapon. We've seen kind. that Kong has the ability to adapt tools and use weapons to his advantage. Something that a, a lizard like Godzilla with its shitty little arms can't possibly <laughs> do. Godzilla can't even throw a punch. All he has is his teeth and his atomic energy blast, which Kong will dodge 100% of the time. I guarantee you he will not land an atomic breath blast on Kong. Kong is too wily. He's too cunning. He's not going to go out like a punk. He, He will defeat the lizard. What he lacks in atomic fire breath, he makes up for in pathos. I think we can all agree on that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And the minute you start to devalue and underestimate Kong is the minute he will bounce back. The Absolutely. minute that he will prove victorious. 100%. And I, yeah. So thank you, Trevor, for, for articulating that. I, I appreciate it. I, I think that we are, in fact, on the right side of history. I think history is on our side because in the, in the last Kong and Godzilla bout from the 60s, uh, Kong was also champion then. Of course he was. So I, I you know, I think that, I think that we're going to, I, I think uh, it's uh, wise. I, I, don't, I don't know when you're releasing this, but we should be clear. We're recording this on Wednesday, the day before the movie comes out. So <laughs> I, don't know if, I don't know if I've already been proven right or wrong, but uh, I'm confident that, uh, I, I, I'll, that Kong will prevail in the end. Absolutely. I just want to end on a depressing note and say that I would argue we are already being... Uh, overtaken and uh, led by lizard creatures uh, in the form of the United States government. But that is. But that, but that's, but yeah, but Kong, but the, the uh, Kong represents to me symbolically is the hope of resisting those reptilian forces that seek to dominate us. Yep. Kong, Kong is, is populism. Kong is like, you know, the the socialist entity. He's the human spirit personified. He is the best of humanity, the best that we can hope to be in the form of a of a, a noble ape. You've Absolutely. just given sort of my leftism a new a new energy, and I really appreciate that. I'm I mean, gonna yeah. insert Kong into my into my landscape. <laughs> Happy to do it. Uh, I've also uh, uh, written on this for Bloodknife.com, a very fine online uh, periodical about uh, that covers mostly science fiction and fantasy and other genre entertainment from a leftist perspective. Uh, co-authored with my good friend Vera Drew, who wrote the uh, the the traitorous pro Godzilla uh, uh, half of the. <laughs> Uh, but that doesn't matter because you know I'm obviously right and Kong's gonna win. But uh, definitely check out Blood Knife. It's it's a great uh, site. 
We'll absolutely. link to it in the in the description too. We absolutely will. We'll we'll link to uh, to your Kong pieces, you know, specifically and in, in Blood Knife at large because uh, yeah, there's there's some great stuff happening over there, and uh, you all should read it. But uh, I think with that, we will close and emphatically uh, and resoundingly pledge a hope, a knowing hope, to Kong's victory, and tell you that we have been Hit Factory along with Trevor from We Need to Talk About Kevin. Trevor, thank you again so much for being here. Uh, this this was great. Thanks so much, guys. And uh, you can follow us at Hit Factory Pod. Um, subscribe at Patreon.com/HitFactoryPod. Shout out to our capitalist overlord Linda. And uh, we will see you all next time.